Hello, and welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Josh Adams, and on our panel today, we have myself, Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody. Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Lars Vickman. Hello. And Stephen Nunez. Hey, what's up? And joining us, we have Desmond Bowie. Desmond, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Desmond Bowie. Happy to be on this podcast. It's uh, it's fun being on a podcast where I don't do the introduction. Uh, some of you may know that I host another podcast called Elixir Talk along with Chris Bell. What else do I do? Well, I haven't done the podcast in a while, so I can't really say I do that. In addition, I organize and founded the MPEX conferences in New York and L.A., and I'm a founding member of the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, and I work by day as the CTO of a startup called Pay It Off, which makes an API for student loans. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Roxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. That's fantastic. So you're are you using Elixir extensively at Pay It Off? We're using Elixir exclusively. Well, I shouldn't say that. I think we have a Python script in there somewhere. But yeah, I mean, that was one of the reasons, Every one of the things that- has a Python script. The system has a Python script. And Elixir was one of the things that drew me to the app. Um, a friend of mine with the CEO uh, wrote it originally a couple years ago in Elixir after he and I had worked on an Elixir project together. And I had introduced him the language and he was super jazzed about it. And you know he felt confident enough after a couple of months to take the leap and write his new startup in this language. And fast forward a couple years later, when he asked me to come on board, I I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't Elixir. I mean, it's a great company. I like the guy, I like the mission, so on and so forth. But I didn't want to work in another Ruby app. It was it would have been a step backwards. I felt. Yeah, I feel like that's a pretty common sentiment. Uh, like once once you start developing in uh, in a Beam language, you definitely like your your how you think about problems and how you solve them definitely changes. And uh, I do find it tough. Uh, switching or going to something else like I, I know personally i keep on looking for jobs where i am doing elixir well, that's kind of I, my first choice i mean just think about it emotionally i mean if you get into something new in life do you try it for a bit and then just go back to your old way of doing things or do you just try to keep pushing forward and exploring new options and seeing what new worlds are out there you know that's a that's a funny funny you should mention that I, I'm, I'm thinking back to when I, I originally wrote seven languages in seven weeks and that book was written completely out of fear, right? So I really suspected that I was in the wrong place and that the world was passing me by. And it was, so the serious functional languages that I looked at were Erlang, um, Scala, Haskell, and, and some Clojure also. But I didn't really find something that clicked and resonated with me. Um, so I did a lot of tire kicking, but until Elixir came along, I wasn't I wasn't ready to to move. So when, one of the interesting things for me, I I went to Elixir having uh, invested five years in Ruby code, so it was a very different experience, right? One of the questions that that I have is how do you go about finding and developing Elixir talent? 
That's a great question. I honestly get asked that question a lot. And I'm afraid that I don't have a good answer for people because people say, how do you find Elixir developers? Well, it helps that I have a podcast that thousands of people listen to. So I can say I'm looking for Elixir developers and people reach out to me. Um, so that's, that's step one. That's step one. Yeah, start a podcast. But actually, half the people on my team, I got through Hacker News posts. You know, the who's hiring and who's um, whatever. I just put some posts up there saying, hey, this is what we're doing. It's Elixir. All Elixir all the time. You want to do this? Come join us. And people reach out. And we found a couple of great engineers that way. So uh, people are out there. People are interested. You know, I, having said that at the top about the podcast, the conference or whatever, I don't know that that's been a, a huge source of inbound. I mean, I, I know people, but it hasn't resulted in a ton of candidates, I would say. So I think the traditional methods of you know, where do you find any other engineer? Because the Elixir enthusiasts, the Elixir curiousists are out there in that mix. Yeah, I think that it, I can make it better. Uh, we we brought on probably three or four Elixir developers during the whole time. You know, one mm -hmm. of the things that's that's interesting is that you don't need as many Elixir developers to do a job, right? And yeah. sometimes it's almost an order of magnitude less. But with with these high leverage languages, Often it pays to develop the talent that that you're that you're pulling in in an elixir direction. Do you find the same thing or something different? Yeah, and I mean that's something that we've seen and something that uh, we've been talking about for a while. Or I've been talking about for a while, which is that people who are interested in elixir are not junior developers. I mean, in your case, Bruce, you've been programming for I don't know how long by the time you found elixir. Uh, I'm not sure what the experience level of the rest of the hosts are, but. My guess is you all have at least five years, at least seven years. Yeah. Some of you maybe have 10 years experience. We surveyed the MPEX attendees, and I think a quarter of them had more than 10 years experience. More than half had more than five years experience, which is remarkable for a community. So if you hire people who are Elixir developers, maybe they don't have a ton of Elixir experience, but they have a ton of other experience. They know how to solve problems. They understand how computers work, how systems work, how products work. So picking up what was probably their fourth, fifth, or sixth language is not a big leap for them. So yeah, training up is a great way to go. And I wonder how much of that is based on where we are as an industry, that so many people now are coming from Optatorian languages, and especially Elixir having Ruby-like syntax. Everybody mm -hmm. kind of gets sucked in to, to doing something you know, richer and more powerful that way. But Elixir is not Ruby at all, right? So I wonder if if what's going to happen over time is we're going to start to get more developers who have done at least functional programming as their first language. And I wonder if if our experience is going to change based on that. So we have a mentoring group at, at Groxio, and one of the things that we try to do is teach people problem solving with Elixir, because that's that's programming 101, right? It's it's you you can't be a great programmer without problem solving. And Elixir has so many great tools to help people think about problem solving, starting with a pipe, right? And and kind of advancing with OTP and you know, all these things. But so I, I wonder if if we're gonna find out that this is kind of an icon of where we are as an industry and less of an icon of where Elixir is and as a language. I'm one of those guys that came up with object-oriented programming. And I remember in high school when they were first explaining, like, this is an object. And it's like, what are you talking about? What is this? What's an object? And they're like, well, it's an instance of a class. And it's like, oh boy, here we go. 
and never understood the lure of functional programming. And it was always, oh, these, you know, these people on the other side of the fence, they just go on and on about it. What's the big fuss? And now that I'm on that side of the fence, I think it's way easier to teach people functional programming as their first language, as their first paradigm. It makes a lot more intuitive sense. Oh, you've taken math, you call a function, you have a variable, that's it. No inheritance, no classes, you know, a car is an instance of a thing, automobile. Well, is an automobile an instance of a, you know, class machine? No, it stops there. Like, why? Yeah, and it seems like a whole class of uh, like problems and bugs kind of go away when you when you start programming in a functional uh, programming language. I mean, ju- just the the obvious one of you know passing by reference versus passing by value, right? That's not even mm-hmm. something you have to think about day to day with you know uh, your functional programming languages. And I've seen many a bugs appear because somebody passed like an object or an array and you know mutated it ever so slightly, and now you have no idea what. Uh, you know, what's been messing around with your object, how it got into this state, where, you know, how do you even track down this bug? And then before you know it, you got console.logs everywhere trying to track it down. So Mutability is the source of the two largest bugs in any software system I was involved in. So I did not miss leaving it behind. Oh, Mutability yeah. across threads just multiplies everything by a thousand. And, and I mean, that's that's the, the, the core of where we are as an industry. It's I remember coding with, with or, or kind of sharing the stage at a conference called No Fluff Just Stuff with a couple of icons. And one of them was Stuart Halloway. And I think that when we were talking about object-oriented development and, and mutability, we were doing Java at the time and kind of moving to Ruby and thinking about what's next. And he said at the time, I think that it would be irresponsible to do a Greenfield application in Java. And I'm kind of starting to feel the same way around Ruby and object-oriented languages, unless you're doing something that really fits like data science, where you kind of have to have that that core of, of like matrices and mutability just, just for raw performance. So so the other the other people that I traveled with, um, one of them was was Dave Thomas. And Dave was was starting to think about where Ruby was was kind of it's a great language, but um, he was starting to think about where that was kind of leaving us behind. A little bit. So those two minds were just incredibly influential on me and, and shaping um, how I felt about object-oriented um, technologies in general. And then, then the last last guy on that tour was a guy named Brian Getz, who is who's actually, I think he's the um, project manager for, for Java and, and actually has a big impact on what goes in an individual release. His biggest quote about how to use Java, um, to your point, Josh, was the biggest problem in Java development is that there aren't enough final keywords in our programs, right? So there aren't enough areas where we say, take this mutable thing and make it immutable, nail it down so that so that there are fewer moving parts. Uh, the problem there is that even, and that's just the reference to whatever you're doing. So even if you pass around that final, if you're mutating stuff on an object, you're still like it's you're still... Good. There's no there's no safety guarantees there, and that's I've seen that trip up people so many times. So kind of rolling it back to people learning functional programming as their first language, I think it's easier in that regard because now you don't have to think of all these all these like nuances of uh, weird uh, behaviors and state being uh, mutated underneath you. So I think it's yeah, I'd be interested to see if newcomers to to programming how they fare in in uh, like Elixir and other FP languages. I think the hardest programming challenges, and this applies to programming paradigms as well as uh, like application architecture, 
is when you have to think about things outside of what you're doing. In other words, you have to understand the whole abstraction tree in order to do anything because you don't have correct abstractions. So I think this applies to mutability, how it applies to object-oriented is object-oriented programming is you can't just think about what's my logic. You have to think about what's the design principle, what's happening under the hood, you know, it's mutable. What else is going to talk to it? What is even the difference between passing by a reference, passing by a value? I have to keep all the details of the machine underneath in my head when I'm trying to write this high-level program. And then you're stuck. Then you can never just say, all right, all this stuff is over here. My whole brain space is going to focus on this narrow set of the problem and really apply to it. And it's really difficult to write programs that way. You think you have to write correct abstractions so that you can deal in other abstractions. That's the whole thing of it. I mean, otherwise, just go down to C because structs in C make sense. I got an area memory, a couple of attributes. That's it. I understand what's going on here. Objects, like, don't... Yeah. They, they really complicate that. And I mean, you can screw this up in Elixir, again, in, with the, at the application level, where your abstractions are all kind of mixed and you have a function that does everything. And so in order to understand any of it, you have to understand all of it. And... That's the sort of thing that makes programming very difficult. It's yeah, hard I, enough. I, I really agree with that. Um, with our mentees, uh, we have we have three things that give us trouble, and that's that's one of them. One of them is actually getting enough fluency in the tool set around them. You know, the I'm learning the gets and installing the system, navigating the command line, and all those kinds of things. The mm -hmm. second thing is when someone is used to thinking in a certain way, particularly with an OOP developer you have to give them the glue, right? And so with, with objects, the, the glue is certain kinds of composition and inheritance. But it kind of reminds me of, you remember the Andy Griffith show? And there was this, this Sheriff Barney Fife, right? And he had, he had a gun and he was only allowed to use one bullet for the gun, right? And that's, that's inheritance, right? And as soon as you take that, that object-oriented framework with inheritance, you've already fired. The, the, the second you tap, Inheritance, you've already fired that that solo bullet. And it's really hard to, to survive contact with a real problem. So, I mean, I, I hope that we expose more young people to functional programming. I think Elixir is a better choice than, say, Scala. Lisps are an interesting choice as well for a first language. I won't necessarily go down that path right now. But it would be interesting to see what happens to the community if we do get an influx of 23-year-olds. Because right now, you know, it's nice, oh, we're all these senior developers and we know all this stuff. What, what would the community look like if it got super popular, if we had this onrush of uh, hypesters? I mean, what do you all think is the future of this? We're several years into the evolution of the language. Like, what, what happens next? And do we want that to happen? I feel like one of the reasons that the average experience level of Elixir developers is, is so high is that the language uh, actually solves problems that you need a certain level of experience to have had. Mm. Uh, most, I don't think most very inexperienced developers can say with, with a certainty that in Python I would have this problem, but in Elixir it's solved like this, or immutability is good or bad because, because you, you need the lived experience for some of it to make sense. I didn't used to care about like multi-core performance or having concurrency solved in a in a sane and consistent way. 
because I guess my code was fast enough. I, I wasn't paying attention at that level. I wasn't thinking so much about building robust systems uh, because WordPress worked fine, Drupal worked fine. I think PHP was, used to be the absolute young man's game, so to speak. It was where all the inexperienced developers tended to gravitate, or at least the, the less formal ones. The other ones, I think, went Java. And today, I think they gather mostly around JavaScript. I don't, I don't think that's exclusively the case. Now. Maybe it's unfair, but I think the average level of experience for JavaScript developers is probably fairly low just because of the sheer amount of them. And I think if Elixir had a different distribution of, of experience levels, I think we might see some of the same challenges that uh, JavaScript is having with, for example, NPM packages or, or that sort of uh, just how do you handle the sheer volume? How do you handle the sheer velocity of your community? I think we could have similar problems, but I also think that the language lends itself to people that strive for a certain level of robustness and quality and reliability. Erlang, for sure, was built on those kinds of principles. And I think Elixir inherits those and builds on those. So I hope we would survive a huge influx of popularity, but I don't know. Yeah, it'd be interesting if it happened now, because I think we've, we've done such a good job at establishing a lot of core libraries and practices to kind of accept a bunch a new wave of I guess junior developers or more junior developers I I was a teacher in New York City for a boot camp at Flatiron School for like a little over three years and in the beginning this is pretty early on into boot camps and whatnot and you could see the changes that happened in Ruby like you one good thing that came out of it is a ton of content came out about Ruby and basic Ruby what is a list what is a string what is an array how do you reverse things like that kind of like super low level stuff which you don't have in Elixir too much because we don't like you said, Desmond, we're coming from other programming languages. So the idea of a struct is not very different. You have a thing to map it to, pun intended. It's, there's no need to kind of like write that super low level content. But I think if we did get that massive influx, like let's say the market flipped over, but it's like functional programming is the way to go. Here's this thing that's Elixir. And then like billions of dollars go into developing things in Elixir. Now we need a billion uh, developers. I think we'd be okay. I think kind of to Lars' point, I think the idea of the those practices and those pillars in the in the platform, but also in the community would let that influx, let us survive that influx. I say like it's a bad thing. It'd be wonderful. Come on over. Do Elixir, everyone. Yeah, so I, I agree with that take a lot. I've, I've been thinking about this some. And one of the things that happened in the Ruby community is that People, even like Chris McCord, were, were watching this, this problem space of how to build these super interactive applications. And they started right at the bare metal, right? How do I build an API for super interactive applications? And when he came over to Elixir, that's not what he did, right? So he started working with Jose on infrastructure and getting the abstractions right. And it's almost like we, we didn't see much progress in, um, I mean, we saw small bits of progress at a time, but all of this was kind of focused around what is now being exposed with LiveView. You know, I don't know about what you guys think, but I, I think that LiveView has a real opportunity to start to bring a, a good amount of young developers to, to the Elixir ecosystem. And, and the reason is that you can make a change to a model, 
and you could see the model on the screen. And um, in any given dimension, you're working with pure functions or really, uh, really clean functions with, with clean side effects. And, and that programming model just kind of blows me away over and over. And I think, Mike, that you're right in that um, we're about to see that we are going to be okay because of the infrastructure that we've laid. And, and Desmond, I think that, that um, you have kind of the, the key insight here that, that we have been working as a, as a, as kind of a core ecosystem of established developers that are, that really understand what adoption and what, um, what good usage models are going to take, you know, from, from documentation to, you know, the, the mixed family of tools to the package management, um, all this stuff is really excellent in infrastructure with excellent documentation that's that I think will will help us survive a surge should we should we have one. So then the question is, what do we do about Erlang? So we had Todd <laughs> here to talk about that last time. So that that was an interesting conversation back to back. You know, uh, you you and Todd have been uh, really heavily invested in the Erlang Foundation. What what took you there? And, and what's been your experience? So I was contacted by Miriam Penna, who's a engineer up in San Francisco, an old, I want to say old Erlang engineer, but I realize that's not a polite thing to say about people. She's an experienced Erlang engineer. Uh, and she reached out to me, I guess, a couple years ago and said, we're starting this foundation. We would love you to be involved. We're looking for some people from the Elixir community because I had talked to James Fish a few months previous about starting a, an MPEX foundation. We, it was after a conference one night, we were having a bunch of beers and we were like, you know what would be great as a foundation based off this, you know, this brand that we have. And that didn't end up going anywhere, but then he talked to her and so on and so forth. And then, so they pulled me in to work on the marketing committee. Uh, Cause I guess I wasn't qualified for the technical committees, but I, so anyway, they put me in charge of marketing and ended up getting that off the ground. And I mean, in those days, the foundation was mostly just administrative, getting stuff set up. What are the bylaws going to say? Where does the bank account reside? Who's going to be the officers? Like, it wasn't honestly that interesting. And it's a lot of, it was a lot of Erlangers. It was a lot of Erlangers, Jose and me. So it was an interesting balance. And I think there's, you know, historical reasons for that because the foundation grew out of the old Erlang Industrial Users Group. But it's it's kind of interesting to see like the iceberg going down and just the, the long roots of this platform because I tended to live in the hip new Elixir area. And there's, you know, it's an interesting cultural uh, balance between the two languages. I think... Yeah, we want to dig into Erlang a bit more, but it's nice that we don't necessarily have to. And I think that we are exerting some important pressure on that community uh, because, you know, before Elixir came along, they didn't have maps. They've been around for 30 years. They didn't have a maps data structure. They said, these lists are, these lists are fine. It's like, they're not really, you know, it's, it's, you can do this a lot better. But I was talking to Fred Hebert one time and I was like, hey man, like, why are the ergonomics of Erlang so awkward? He said, you know, for a long time, if you had this problem, Erlang was the only solution. So you just used it. And that was that. And I think that speaks to a lot of like that culture's attitude. And I don't know how, I mean, they would certainly be a very strong breaking factor on an influx of enthusiastic 22-year-olds. Or they will be an intriguing mystery of weird old people using it. 
weird old language. No, I think that's uh, maybe the the wrong take. What we spoke to Todd recently about was the fact that Erlang, as it is, and as it has been, gives Elixir a strong history, which uh, I think sets it apart from a lot of new languages in that Erlang has a proven history of, I would say, technical excellence and maybe not that much adoption. Uh, It's a very competent, the Beam is very competent. Erlang has again and again proven to be a very strong language, but Elixir makes it more approachable. But I don't think Elixir would be as compelling if it didn't have the history of Erlang. And I don't want to call it legacy in Erlang because legacy is a very, very heavy word in in tech, but literally the legacy. Erlang has a reputation that's been earned over a long period of time. It's proven itself. Elixir is fairly new or was extremely new when it came out, of course. And I have a I have a wild I don't think metaphor. it would stand on its own without Erlang necessarily. I have a wild metaphor in this area. I, I strongly agree with your take, but it does involve Swedes and marketing. <laughs> uh-huh. So I was teaching a class with Eric Meadows Johnson, and he was as interested in getting there early as he always is, as if to say not at all, right? So we were rolling into this class late. This, this was in the, the core Ericsson building, you know, one, of the, one of the buildings on campus. One of the things that I noticed was there was this one particular interface that was behind you know, all of the all of the locked doors. So I, I was kind of running up to this building with Eric, kind of dragging him to, into. And Monica, who runs a lot of these these conferences for you know, Code Beam and and you know long before, ran up to meet us and and was handing us this badge and and handing us this other badge. And so I was about to insert the badge in the door, and she says, "No, wait!" And so the eyes got really big and everything. And and we said, oh, okay, stop. And then she reaches behind the badge reader and pulls this badge out and says, you have to reach this one. If you put this one in, the alarm will sound, the building will empty, bad things, right? So, you know, I popped the thing in and and Eric went through and I was going to go through. She said, no, wait, let it close, right? If you do tailgate, you might not get through in time. And if that happens, the alarm will sound and the building will empty. And then after three or four of these like really wild things, we actually got into the room and it was kind of nice, right? And, you know, I just seen this sporting event where, where the line in the men's room was like really, really long. And the line to the women's room was really short. And I went to another one where it's completely the opposite. And they had this this restroom that they had like a common area for both genders, and then they had like single, um, you know, single use stalls um, for, you know. And, and I thought, wow, concurrency in a restroom, but behind a completely impossible, you know, paywall or marketing. So, so they got the the marketing completely wrong, and they got the you know the interface to the the building completely right, and. It struck me as the perfect metaphor for a Swedish language. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, One of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks... Uh, You've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, 
well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. That's a great story. That's a great story. I mean, I think beyond even the the marketing, and I think certainly Elixirs are more suited to marketing than Erlangers, frankly. But we bring a different attitude. Like Erlangers think a lot about infrastructure and they think a lot about like, well, is it reliable? You know, and well, is it, you know, is it fault tolerant and all these other buzzwords? And that stuff is great. But I think our backgrounds tend to be like, can I get something out the door that delivers a ton of business value right now? Can I make an awesome experience for users? Can I build a team with a couple people? Um, you know, I there's a certain Ruby bias uh, in the community for sure. And honestly, I wish we had less of that. I think it would be nice to have more people from other backgrounds. But we tend to come from, in the larger sense, like startup backgrounds. We start companies, small companies. We throw stuff out there. We see what works. Like that's, uh, that's elixirous, really. And I think that's really what we have to offer. And that's the big opportunity for the language is to move out of like crazy infrastructure. Yeah, powers telecom systems. Like that's super great. I'm not building any telecom systems. Most people are not building telecom systems. If that's where you want to stay, the language is going to remain very small. I think if we can demonstrate that it's got a lot of power in the startup ecosystem, even in the enterprise, then you start seeing things take off. People have often asked me, well, what's the key to things getting big? Is it some people have the attitude of, we have to go to big companies and have like these small services written in Elixir, and then it'll slowly make its way into the company. No, it won't. It's going to stay the small service. It's, they're never going to rewrite their core application logic in this other language. What we need is the next GitHub. We need a small startup to take a chance on this language, and the startup blows up. And then suddenly everybody knows about it. And they have 100 developers working on this thing. They've got their own fork of the framework. Like That is how people really notice the language when it lets a team do something that has not been able to be done before. Yeah, we'll kind of add the idea of, of abstractions. I, add it, I echo everything you said, but I would add the um, idea of having the protocols and the macros so that we can build the language itself, having you know, on and on and on. Um, there are beautiful abstractions going all the way from a mixed project to the macros that, that are used to build the language itself that kind of replace that Emacs key on the, you know, that, that everybody had uh, to, to create the OTP gen server mm-hmm. with code that writes code. The, the protocols and, and kind of the, the formalization of some of the, the behaviors and the way that they're consumed, all that stuff lends speed, yes, but speed with, um, with intellectual rigor that doesn't take you down the type rabbit hole. And I think that that's kind of the sweet spot for Elixir. And when, when you kind of apply, when, when you apply all that stuff with, with abstractions that um, really make people more productive, like, like we talked a lot about um, massive scale and about concurrency. Well, LiveView caches in a lot of that stuff to build some pretty spectacular things for the end user. And that's the kind of thinking that I think it, that will um, will help us take the next step. Mm-hmm. The question is, do we need more abstractions? I remember Dave Thomas gave his uh, controversial talk a couple years ago about, you know, we can't be thinking about gen servers and sending messages to processes. We need a higher level of managing applications. And 
I don't think his ideas really went anywhere. So perhaps that's telling. But sometimes I think it is a bit clunky to write all these handle infos and handle casts and handle calls. And now I have to trap messages uh, if I have linked these processes. And isn't there a simpler way of doing that? And I mean, yeah, I could probably write some DSL, some abstraction. I think I frequently want to drop down to have that kind of level of control. On the other hand, like that's a lot of boilerplate that I have to write. So is there another way? Is there a way that we can go up a bit and write other write other abstractions so we don't have to think too much about processes? Or are we stuck here? Should we just that's be a really good here? question? Like how far should beyond the tasks and and you know at the time the agents should we go? That was a, a couple, you know, there were a couple of pretty good things that came out of his slightly higher level of abstraction. But I agree with you that there are some things that um, that are that do feel a lot like too much boilerplate when 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 building the gen server and the API and the public facing interface where where you kind of have these three layers that that could work together more tightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to see some of that, but uh, I don't know why it hasn't gotten anywhere. Yeah, I'm gonna maybe maybe I'm complacent here, but I've always found that it's actually pretty easy to only pull in what I need, like in a gen server. Like, you know, maybe maybe my gen server only deals with uh, synchronous communication. So I only need to implement a couple of handle calls. You know, if I need something more uh, more robust, maybe I have a couple of handle infos to handle some cron jobs. But it always feels like it's kind of a la carte, right? Where you can start as simple as you want in a gen server, and then you can build it up and get more complicated. Maybe your gen server has like a task supervisor and you spin off other tasks. Uh, to do you know the, the heavy lifting and your your gen server is just the coordinator, but that all, that all that all seems kind of as you need it. You can expand upon it. I mean, you could definitely have monolithic gen servers, uh, you know, like a, like a god class, if you will. But uh, I don't know. Again, maybe I'm just complacent, but I always felt that it wasn't too much boilerplate. But I don't. Mm-hmm. I came from Java, so I'm I'm in that camp. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely with, uh, with Dave for sure. I was I was like, oh, this component thing, I like this, as opposed to this like use gen server, define my start link, define my my client code, define my server code. Like it seems like there's a lot of stuff. And I, what I appreciated about the talk was that he was willing to kind of like I, I think there are conceptual sac- Erlang sacred cows that we are slowly slaughtering. Poor cows. So for instance, like the dynamic supervisor, right? We used to have the simple one-for-one strategy and then we're like, actually, this kind of sucks. Let's let's make this other thing that kind of like has a clear API and lets you sort of like work with it nicer. So there are changes that we're, in, as in the election community, willing to make and accept. I think GenServe is a big one though. Like being able to simplify that API, even if you still allow it to exist in the background and still have it as an option, I think would be a tough sell. But I think we should keep questioning, like, is this right? Is this the best way? Given all the you know great macros we can write, given given all the great testability, given all the great foundation we have, should we go that level up? I, I was really excited about Dave's talk. So so Jose and James Fish are both maddeningly slow when it comes to these kinds of APIs, but also maddeningly right. You know they 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 both tend to circle APIs and and abstractions until they land on the right one. I think that's one of the great things about Elixir, but it's frustrating to to see these incremental what look, looks like improvements to a layman, and then you know here that's not quite it. I think that's what we would see if we had a bunch of twenty three, twenty four year olds coming to the language. Is they would say, oh, I don't know about all this crap. I'm going to write my own abstraction. It's going to do all the things, and kind of like you see in in JavaScript, and 
every week there would be some new, well, here's my DSL over gen servers. And here's my DSL over, and here's my body, blah, blah, blah. And some people would adopt it. I think there would be a certain amount of fatigue. And I think the platforms would be kind of brittle. But I think it's also, it's invigorating to a community to have all these kinds of experiments going. You know, they're not going to be official language. They're not going to be official to the language. So you don't have to use them. That's fine. But when you have that kind of experimentation that I think, frankly, most of us are a little too old and uninvigorated for, it's, it's good for the community. Like you need to have that fresh blood. You need to have a bunch of ideas. Most of them are crummy, but like that, that's what keeps, uh, keeps things alive. That's what keeps the fire burning. Amen, brother. Yeah, it's quite possible that we have a real risk of the Elixir community actually being a little too boring and a little too serious. I wonder about the whole gen server thing, though. I never really, I find it hard to introduce to a new person, not because the, like, the primitive or the concept is that complex, but just gen server. It doesn't really say anything to me. The naming is weird, uh, but that's a carryover from Erlang, of course. And it makes sense to, to some extent, to retain it and, uh, and stay like, terminology compatible at the very least. I also think that a lot of the innovation in Elixir, like LiveView as the typical example, which has gotten a lot of attention as well. It's from these central characters in the community, Chris, Jose, that gang. Um, and it's not like they don't allow anyone else to try, but that's where the attention is. And most other things you want to do is generally are generally achievable with the with the fairly simple primitives that we have, and I think a lot of people are worried about like breaking compatibility or running off and doing a thing that doesn't really work with everything else. But if you stick to gen servers and fairly fairly simple libraries, uh, you fit in well, and that makes it a lot easier when people in, are supposed to integrate your stuff. Sometimes I find that Phoenix is probably the least well-behaved in this manner because it does a lot of things on its own, a lot of things differently. Uh, there's a lot of macros. There's a lot of generating route helper functions and a bunch of some implicit magic that you that you really need to keep track of. Uh, so I don't know. It's I think I have a feeling why people don't experiment as much as in the JavaScript community. And I think some of it's not that we're old, but some of it's also that we can already do everything we feel like we need to do with the primitives we have. So anything that anything that need is going to make a splash really needs to make a difference. And I think LiveView clears that bar. It does give us something we want, less JavaScript mainly, which is also a bit of a conservative goal. So... Yeah, I think conservative is a really good goal. This is a fascinating conversation for me because this is kind of watching what happens in 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 other languages communities. Um, like Lisp, the the thing that killed Lisp originally was this idea of um, continuously forking off a new dialect that did a new thing, right? In 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 subtly different but backwards and compatible ways, and so. There are some benefits to being conservative as well as some drawbacks, right? So we don't have the kind of the 
the incubation of new ideas, so to speak, but the the idea that that most people have gotten in line behind a, a couple of serious conventions around nerves for the Internet of Things, around um, Phoenix and and now LiveView for interactive user interfaces, around Elixir for um, kind of the core base abstractions, around Mix for the shape of a project for integration of OTP applications. That really gives us this this idea that every layer builds on the last one. And I'm Desmond, uh, thanks for kicking off this conversation. I mean, what like what are the goals of the community? An implicit goal seems to be we need to get bigger. Why? I mean, if the goal is to have a larger community, the largest community is JavaScript. And that's not a conservative community. And it's, you know, I think, uh, Lars, most of us agree with you that the best part about LiveView is we don't have to write JavaScript. So that's like our cultural bias. But I would, I guess, challenge, like, why does it need to, why do we need to keep getting larger? Why do we want young people in? I mean, yeah, it's, you get this figuration, what's going to happen 10 years, like Jose is 10 years older, you know, he's BDFL. And I mean, I like Jose, that's cool. But I mean, what do we like? What do we want out of this? Do we want to have fun? Do we want to build cool systems? Do we want to have a nice experience? Do we want to have other people in the community that we respect? Like, if the community were much larger, it would have a different feel to it. You know, we would there would be more beef and more drama because that's how these things go when they get large enough. And I don't know. Sometimes I think we're going to keep doing our thing. It's here if you want it. Like, why worry about? about all this. Hey, have you heard about Elixir? Isn't this great? Come check it out. I mean, I would say let the results speak for themselves. People will gravitate towards it if they've had the problems that they realize Elixir solves. So I know I'm kind of arguing against myself here, particularly with work I've done in the community. But lately I've been, I don't know, I've, I mean, I mentioned in the, uh, the prep doc for this, like, I'm kind of bored with it. Like I'm at the point now where I'm just focusing on, I like this thing. It's transparent to me. I've internalized a lot of the constructs. Like I'm just here to solve problems with it and work on some interesting stuff. Well said. But I think that's an interesting part. And I think that's that's touching uh, on a central core of many of the Elixir community people that we don't want things to change under our feet too much. Mm. Uh, people were actually happy be mostly i i believe people were mostly happy when jose said that there are not a lot of big changes planned to the language the language like done. oh yeah yeah it's weird. basically done great great it's like i like it already it's fine it works uh, and as you said let the results speak for themselves what i think most people or speaking for myself what i want when i'm looking at spreading adoption of the language is mostly that I want to help other developers find something that I find really useful. I want them to have the good experience I'm having. But also, I want to make sure that there is a future where we can keep doing this. For my own purposes, I can always choose Elixir and say, I know exactly why I'm choosing it and I know where it will be good and not. But if there's a future where Elixir somehow collapses and I have to either switch to Erlang or switch to something entirely different, I will probably be a bit sad. So I, I want to push for a future of adoption. I don't think, much like we don't want an explosive development of the language, we don't want an explosive development of language traction. 
I, I don't think that would land very well in the Luxor community. I think we're growing at a steady and probably healthy pace. I think the community, as I see it, seems sustainable. More and more uh, businesses adopting it and more and more developers being interested. It attracts a very desirable uh, type of developer, an experienced developer. Uh, so hiring and uh, I think... I think the number of jobs will increase and I think the the number of people wanting to do Elixir will increase. So I, I'm not concerned about the adoption rate. I think it's going fine. My primary concern with adoption in Elixir is in my old age, I would like for my pacemaker to not have been programmed in JavaScript. Hey, they put JavaScript on a spaceship, so it can be made to work. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv, and I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community, and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show, though, is React Roundup. And every week, we bring in people from the React community, and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. Josh, you want to kick off our picks? I suppose we should do picks. Bruce, do you want it? Do you have any picks? What's, what's a pick? Yeah, so... All right, so um, first I will explain picks. So picks are just link, uh, you know, some something you want to point out that you find interesting, whether it be tech related or otherwise. Yeah, so I have a couple of picks for you. Um, so the Groxio pick is the Groxio YouTube channel. So most recently, we released a video that that kind of broke out the work that we did on on schemaless chain sets, and, and that one's free. That's on the YouTube channel. There's another another project that I'm watching. There's there's a, a statistician that I really like that a lot of you probably heard heard of. His name is Nate Silver. He does a election forecast and I'm not really trying to draw attention to the election so much or politics as the idea that you can build a beautiful model and kind of part of the delivery of that model is a clean explanation for what it does and the visualizations and how it works. This is an excellent job of, of taking um, a data sciences delivery and, and breaking it up in a way that's really understandable and clear and usable. Yeah, I'll go. Uh, I have, um, I've actually been going through the Groxio uh, live view course and it's really, really, I like the, the format. There are other sort of live view courses which are very well rehearsed and uh, you sort of like are going to a very like specific goal. Bruce, you do a really good job at sort of like showing the process and showing how the sausage is made. So like a lot of subtle things come out that I can appreciate. So how to debug and how to chase like something going wrong. But ultimately, like it's it's really, really insightful. So I've been enjoying that a ton. Much appreciated. Yeah, I can go next. Uh, so I got two picks for today. Uh, the first one is a talk from Michael Muscala. I think I hope I said his name right. Uh, so he's the author of uh, JSON, the, uh, the library, but uh, his talk is from uh, Elixir to Erlang. So it's actually, it actually aligns nicely with our talk today about uh, you know, Elixirists, you know, learning Erlang and, you know, what are the pros, what are the cons, you know, our, our favorite engineering word trade-offs and it depends. So great, uh, great talk. Definitely recommend that. Uh, and then the other pick is a library called eCharts from the, I think it's an incubating project at Apache. 
but uh, you can create really nice uh, graphs and visuals. And I've been playing around with getting that working alongside uh, Live View and using Phoenix uh, hooks. So it's uh, it's been interesting and cool. So definitely recommend that library as well. So I will put up the book Night Circus, which is a piece of fiction um, that I strongly recommend. It really gets to, <laughs> at certain points, it really gets to my like craftsmanship and artistry mentality and just really digs into what it means to make a perfect experience, something you basically never get to do. And aside from that particular flavor that just hits me right in my brain itch uh, it also just a really good book uh, so it's a piece of fiction uh, i'll have the author's name in the show notes i'll do two picks the first is i recently came across a video of transparent oleds and i don't know if you guys have seen demonstrations of this but it's basically the future it's it looks like a piece of glass it's, you can see through it and then a display comes up on it and you know, it's insane. And I believe they have commercial products being released now. Um, I think they're mostly in China. But it's one of those like, oh, we're living in the future. You know, like when the iPhone first came out, like, wow, this is happening now. That's pretty cool. So I think it's, they've, the technology has been around for a bit. I just came across it recently. So take that. It's pretty wild. And the second thing I'll share, I've been into the a YouTube channel recently by a guy named Rick Beato. He's got a channel called Everything Music, and he's got a ton of YouTube content about what is music, how do scales work, uh, how does guitar work, how does music work, what makes this song great, a lot of really rich, interesting stuff. So if you're into music at all, if you're a musician, if you're curious, like, you know, there's a structure and, and a whole thing going on behind music. It's a good personality, really breaks it down, very knowledgeable guy. I've been into it lately, and I would recommend it. Okay, so that about wraps it up for this episode of Elixir Mix. <laughs> Thank you to our guest, Desmond. Yeah. And thanks to our panelists. See you next time, folks. Thanks a lot. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.